Hello and welcome to the Friday Reporter Podcast. I'm Lisa Camuso-Miller, your host, and a 25-year public affairs professional in Washington, D.C. The concept behind the podcast is to interview the media, get to know them, find out about their background, and lots of other topics. The Friday Reporter Podcast is in partnership with PR Daily. PR Daily is a resource for trends, insider tips, and lots of other topics inside the communication space. Join me there at prdaily.com to learn more and to find the Friday Reporter Podcast. Well, thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Welcome to the Axios April uh, series. I'm so lucky to have uh, scheduled and lined up some dynamite conversations with the superstars that are at Axios. Today's guest is Hope King, who is a business reporter for Axios, but she is also the co-author of Axios Closer. Hope, thanks so much for being with me. It's great to be here. Thanks so much, Lisa. So hope I, I hope maybe we could talk a little bit. Your background is is great. I mean, you've been at so many really brand name dynamite publications. Talk to me a little bit about how you got into journalism. Yeah, I have been very lucky in my second career to have worked for a lot of great startups that have innovated in the digital space of news. And I am fortunate to call Axios my home now. And I will say Without question, it's really the best newsroom that I've ever worked for. Um, but in the past, uh, before Axios, I was an anchor, a news anchor with Cheddar on the Florida Stock Exchange. I was there for about four years covering business news live every day for about four hours. And it was an awesome learning experience to cover the markets mm-hmm. and technology and these big trends. Uh, CNN before that, and then Business Insider. But I started my career actually professionally in finance. Right out of undergrad, I worked for Merrill Lynch and was there for a number of years until I really felt that I couldn't go much further without really taking that break and just seeing if journalism would work out for me. And Mm -hmm. I'm really lucky that it did. Do you think that helps? That must help inform so much of your reporting too, having that baseline um, experience at Merrill Lynch. Absolutely. You know, before this conversation, I was thinking about how to talk about this career move, about about this career move. And I think what is ultimately the best that any journalist can best thing that, that any journalist can do for him or herself is to be immersed in as much of the world as possible. Mm-hmm. And I think the benefit of having worked in a corporate job and now covering business is that I know very intimately what goes on in these meeting rooms. I know what goes on as a manager. I know what goes on as an employee. And I think that really does make me stand out as a journalist. And when I talk to my sources, because I ask questions that I know most journalists who are covering business won't be able to ask. I have that intimate knowledge. And I think it makes me a much more um, well-rounded person, but, but also to cover this beat specifically to be able to empathize in a different way mm-hmm. to get the kind of questions um, and answers that uh, most people might not even have thought about to ask. Well, I, I think it comes through in your reporting because it's it's clear that you have a very solid understanding of, of the business space. It strikes me, having been in Washington myself now for 20 years, that the one thing that always surprises me is how uh, – misunderstood Washington is from the business uh, point of view in terms of, you know, Wall Street versus Capitol Hill, there is still sort of a translation that has to happen between the two. And that I think, whether it's intentional or not, it really does come through in the reporting that you're doing. Thank you. Yeah, I think we all tend to 
stay in our lanes or we tend to know our subjects so deeply that it's hard for us to place ourselves in a different position or to see our own jobs from the position of someone that we're speaking to. And I think that's really important no matter what job you're in, honestly, you know, not just in journalism, but in any form of, um, well, all jobs require communication. Mm -hmm. And so once you can remove yourself from your own position and see the story, see the challenge from the perspective of your counterpart, I think that makes for a more fruitful or productive conversation that will hopefully, you know, yield solutions um, that will satisfy, you know, both sides of the the problem. And so for those of the listeners who are not familiar with Axios, Axios has a really, to me, just a great fresh perspective uh, in the way that you all are doing your reporting. You have lots of in-depth um, conversations that are happening in terms of the stories and the coverage, but you're also really mindful about how busy people are and how you package up that material and get it to the readers. Talk to me a little bit about that philosophy and how that plays out in what you do every day. Yeah. I wouldn't be a good business journalist if I wasn't even keeping an eye on my own industry. And I will say that as somebody who has managed teams and products that are very valuable, I was very interested and I very much respected and admired Axios as a company because they have a unique product. You know, to your point, we have such a sharp focus on that user experience to turn this conversation into, you know, sort of a business one. Um, our product is our news, is our content, but our customers uh, that we serve, our readers, are the ones that we are thinking about first and foremost. So how do we deliver our product, our news, our information in a way that we know will give the best experience to our readers? And that is in our you know, sort of patented smart brevity format. Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, as a business journalist, I evaluate businesses all the time. And uh, having watched Axios really grow and really establish itself right off the bat with this unique product made it stand out from that perspective. The underlying business that we're in, news gathering, reporting, I mean, we are stocked with the, you know, the the best journalist in in the industry. Mm-hmm. So the quality of our product is is coming from our people and I think that's, you know, the, the the full package. So when we have a business that is customer first, reader first, audience first and it's supported by quality products which is, you know, our our journalists, um you really have the best combination for a news company designed for the times that we're living in. Mm-hmm. No question about it. And and what I love about uh, so many of the newsletters all across the, the journalism space, but really the one that, that you mentioned, that smart brevity, it's amazing that that's um, patented. Is that what you said? Yeah, I, th- I think we I think we have that as our, you know, our, Good. our, our, our brand. And, you know, we have a we have other products. Uh, you know, again, this goes to show how savvy our founders are, our leaders are. I mean, we have now extended that method of writing, of communicating into a product that we're selling into companies for their internal communications. Uh And as somebody, right, and as somebody who used to run internal comms for a product inside of Merrill, I mean, that is such a unique 
you know, stream of revenue for, for a business like ours. And yeah. also it really does simplify things because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all communicators, whether we're, we're talking about news delivery or internal communications. Well, there's no question about it. The founders and the team there that you work with, you yourself as well, and the products that you produce every day, uh, always seeing around the corner. Always, you know, the crystal ball is, I think, just a little clearer uh, for you guys because you are always thinking about ways to be, because journalism is evolving and changing regardless of how people feel about that. And Mm -hmm. that ebb and that flow, to me, is very well illustrated in the, the innovation and the thought process that goes on inside of Axios. Will you talk to me a little bit about the Axios Closer, the the afternoon newsletter that you co-author? Yeah, absolutely. So we have a couple of business newsletters and the one that I help to write every day is called Axios Closer and it's sent around five o'clock, 5.15. We try to find a mix of business stories that will catch you up on everything that you may have missed by the time the end of the day rolls around. And we package it in a way where it's short enough where you're not maybe dreading opening it and that you will find a delightful experience toward the end as we, you know, tell you the big top important stories at the beginning. And, you know, when we have the close of the newsletter toward the end, we give you something lighthearted and something to maybe remember the day by a quote from, you know, a business leader or, or, you know, policymaker. And we try to give that to you in an experience where you can read it un- under three minutes. Um, so a lot of people actually ask me, well, isn't it maybe easier um, when you have, <clears throat> excuse me, when you have a newsletter that is, is shorter and it's actually a lot harder than most people think to I write in, <laughs> in, a, in, in a brief way. So mm-hmm. the challenge comes from how do we really distill that information that you need to know into the most salient, most succinct points. When you're producing those newsletters, Hope, who do you uh, envision as the uh, the audience that you're trying to influence and um, and offer information to? I think we have a pretty broad audience mm-hmm. for our business newsletters. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a morning newsletter called Axios Markets, and that's something where when you are reading it, you know, fresh in the morning, you have the attention to kind of go into the weeds of what's happening with markets and with some of these more in-depth trends that are happening. Sure. I think by the time, again, we think of our audience of our readers first, by the end of the day, we understand that everybody is, you know, sort of taxed out. Uh, I, you know, I imagine my Axios closer reader to, um, during the pre-pandemic days, to be maybe waiting for a friend at the bar and they're just, you know, sitting there, mm-hmm. uh, scrolling through, catching up on the news and, uh, you know, that that's sort of the, the tone that we're kind of going for. Got it. Got it. So much of your coverage, uh, at least recently, is focused uh, in on businesses and the decisions that they're making as it relates to Russia and the Ukraine cl- uh, conflict. At least initially, there's also some focus in on China and ch- how China is responding. Will you talk to me a little bit about your focus now? Like, what is it that you know, when you wake up in the morning, what is it that you say, like, I'm going to go check in on that today. Talk to me about your process and and how it is that you come to arrive at stories. Well, I think what we have the benefit of here in our newsroom is a group of people who have been, you know, covering this from their own perspective beats, whether it's politics or national security. And so I always like to check in with my colleagues to see what I may have missed. 
um, you know, overnight we have a great night desk team, news desk team. Um, so I try to catch up on sort of everything that we've already covered. And, and I think about what comes next after those stories. Mm. Sometimes in the news business, we can be very caught up in what's happening now. And that's certainly what news is primarily. Right. Right. But I think what makes Axios so unique and special is that we focus on the big ideas and really connecting the dots. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to join Axios because we are taking that really, you know, high broad view of things that are going on in different areas of the world and in different areas of, you know, society. So, Mm -hmm. you know, as you just mentioned, what might be happening in Europe is, absolutely impacting what's happening with businesses here in the U.S., how they are managing employees. And I think when we can thread those needles together, I that's where I thrive and where I look to find my stories. What is the intersection of what's happening, you know, in different parts of the world, different areas of our world? And how does that all make sense to somebody who maybe is only looking at one piece of it or who is coming at it from completely, you know, fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's my approach. It's, a, and it, it comes through, as I said before, in, in your reporting, because it really is written in a way that, that I think is just new and fresh, but also from that perspective where, you know, even a consumer who I'm not, I don't have a business background, I have a communications background, but to me, it always sort of, I feel like it's very relatable, it's very understandable, and it's also written in a way that it sort of makes very, um, just it makes good natural sort of connection to the the news of the day and that that I really appreciate so much. I um, am curious about, uh, I mean, so much of what you've done is, is so incredibly impressive at Axios, is there a particular story or a particular uh, series or is there something that you've covered that you're especially proud of, something that stands out in your mind as one that you just really enjoyed covering? Yeah, there there have been so many, but there have been a couple of standouts in the past year, primarily around worker conditions during the pandemic. I think many of us, you know, many of us, when we started lockdowns, started to reflect on our own lives and what was important. And then as we started to move out of lockdowns and into these physical spaces again, we may have forgotten or you know taken for granted a lot of the physical labor that is so responsible for the way that our world works. So one of the stories in this theme is around service workers. Um, To tie it back to the previous question about how I approach stories, we know that there's been a huge market for labor in in terms of demand. Employers cannot find enough workers in the amount of time they need to fill the jobs to to keep operating. Mm -hmm. One of those sectors is services, restaurants, retail. So that's, that's one story that's been percolating. The other part of the story is when we have started to come back out into the world, we are now interacting with people who are from different parts of the country. They have had different maybe views on how the pandemic should or should not have been handled. And you then have a clash of cultures. And how those two stories tie in together is that you have people who are coming out of the pandemic with their emotions whatever they've been through, 
you're 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 really contrasting them with people who have had maybe very different experiences mm-hmm. and and those short fuses have led to really rude and nasty behaviors mm-hmm. now how that all again at a big picture level how that affects the labor market is a lot of these rude customers are actually moving people out of their jobs people who are working in restaurants and retail they are being treated terribly they are not getting paid wages that are fair mm-hmm. and so really it's been the last straw for a lot of them and they've been quitting well that is then leading to the labor crisis yeah so one All of the stories that I've mm-hmm. right so one of the stories that I've really loved to connect the dots in in that way for Axios that I, that I that I wrote is that you know really unruly behavior is threatening the economic recovery because if you don't have people who want to go to work because people are rude to them then we can't get the economy back on track and I think, again, that just really um, illustrates kind of the, the way that we look at stories, the way that I look at stories with our Axios lens, that big picture lens. That's fascinating. And, it, and I've seen it play out before my own eyes. I've seen so much of that. Um, even just I was traveling a couple of weeks ago. You just you see it and you see it all the time. And it's it's happening there in that service space for sure, but in so many other places as well. And it's interesting that you make that connection because I can see it. I can see it just in, in the limited travel that I've done it since um, we've all sort of started to reenter uh, life as it is. And that's, that's going to be difficult. And I don't you feel as if that that's going to be an even harder shift because of the way people have, um, con- they continue to, to behave that way. So it's going to be difficult to see how that adjusts itself. Yeah, I've asked many business leaders if they are optimistic or not that the lessons we've learned in the, over the past two years will stick with them. And I think most business leaders are by nature pretty optimistic. You know, their job is to focus on the future. And so they need to have sort of a, a rosy picture of what that future is going to look like if they're going to lead. But I do think on a you know fundamental level, one of the reasons why we as a society have taken labor for granted, physical labor for granted, is because, you know, technology has made it so much easier for us to get things. And so we don't mm-hmm. see that labor anymore. Um, you know, one wonderful uh, expert that I speak with all the time, Melissa, Melissa Swift at, at Mercer, you know, she was the one who really kind of laid it, laid it out for me pretty clearly. When you're in an Uber, you see the person who is driving you, obviously. But when you are in the process of booking that ride, your interaction with technology really masks what, that labor force looks like, which is that there are millions of people in cars waiting for a ride to show up on their end for them to then pick you up and and make a living. And so we then have this divide between the services that we take sort of for granted and the people who are on the back end who are actually making it happen, right? When you get a two-day delivery, Mm -hmm. it doesn't just appear on your doorstep by magic. There are a lot of people along the way in the supply chain that make that two-day delivery possible. And so I think that's one of the key elements of why we clearly had issues, right, during mm-hmm. the, the pandemic with 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 supply chain. But it also hopefully helps people understand a good amount of our economy still relies on the physical labor of people, and people are not robots. They cannot work nonstop. Yeah, they need breaks. And it's not just about pay. 
for them to take a job. There is fulfillment, there's satisfaction that frankly, everyone deserves and and not just people who are in jobs where they can work remotely and and have the luxury of thinking about, you know, a different career path, uh, you know, every other day, you know, some people are unfortunately uh, unable to, to have those types of aspirations if they don't have the social network or, or resources to support them in doing that. That's such an, I mean, it's such a, that point of view makes so much sense to me, but I've never heard anybody really articulate it that way quite, and it's crystal clear to me. So um, thanks for that. And and that's absolutely true. We really have become sort of a system where we, we get immediate gratification through the use of our digital devices or whatever the case may be, not realizing Mm -hmm. how many other people are really impacted by that. Uh, It also is an easy place for people to hide uh, by sending off texts and emails and other nonsense behavior that can also be super unkind, but that's a whole nother conversation for another day. Um, Hope, how did your um, reporting, were you in the newsroom during the pandemic? Were you guys remote? How did that look for you guys? We were remote and, you know, I think we'll continue to be remote. I think, um, you know, my own career over the last two years has been a real reflection of the pandemic as well. Mm-hmm. I was really fortunate to have been on the floor of the stock exchange when most of the trading, um, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, that that panic trading mm. started. I, I remember feeling the anxieties and the tensions of the traders on the floor. I, bet. I remember seeing people, um, you know, Right, right in at the beginning, you know, to me and to others uh, about sort of their their own um, anxieties, and you know, I, I covered it from that perspective, the mental health aspect. Yeah. Um, and then I myself was the product of a huge layoff. You know, I lost my job during um, the first you know wave in that April time period two mm-hmm. years ago. I was part of the great. Um, unemployment crisis. Mm. And I started to blog about that and talk to other people during that time period to see how people were getting along uh, with themselves, you know, my own reflections on my own career. Um, And then as I started to figure out sort of what I really wanted my work to look like and the impact I wanted to make, you know, the opportunity with Axios came up, I jumped on it and very fortunate to have made it through the interview process with them, which was very rigorous to, mm. to join a great group of journalists. And so I lived the economic pandemic that we just had. And yeah. I think that also makes me, um, you know, in a, puts me in a position uh, to report on this, this uh, ongoing, you know, where we're still in it, mm-hmm. um, you know, crisis in, in, in my own way. And, and I think, you know, for, for me, again, just to go back to our, our first point when we started this conversation, the more lived experiences you have, I think that makes you obviously a, a, a richer person in, in life. But for as a journalist, it's such a it's such a, a secondary benefit because I, I have that deep lived experience and empathy for lots of different um you know, live experiences. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm really fortunate to, in some ways to have, to have gone through it as, as hard as it was. And it, it just dawned on me. I mean, I, I am sorry for being so Washington centered. Uh, are you, are you in New York? 
Where, where's home base for you? Yeah, home okay. base for me is, is in New York. Okay, um, great. And, and that was great, too. I mean, seeing the city, uh, it, you know, shut down, it was like being on a movie set in New York City. It was wonderful in some moments. And so how many people are in the Axios New York uh, orbit? You know, I don't know. We, we do have a pretty big presence here, though, but I don't mm-hmm. know the exact number. Oh, that's okay. It was the pop quiz. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> expecting to really know the answer. But, but you know, you, f- you forget about that because, uh, because the founders, obviously, are, were DC-centered, and, and so mm-hmm. much of Axios is really, it's everywhere now. And that's one of, I guess, the, one of the benefits of the digital side of the world is that everybody can be just about everywhere to cover their space, especially if they're as well-sourced and well-resourced um, as you to have that um, New York base. And that's fantastic. Do you think... So, Okay, so you know, pandemic is is a little bit waning. We hope. I mean, I always I, mm-hmm. hate, I hate to say it because it's. I feel like we're going to just get ourselves right in the back into it. But, um, but you're in New York, and when you're not reporting, is there um, is there a hobby? Is there something that's keeping you busy outside of the newsroom that's uh, that's happening in New York? Well, you caught me on a good week because I just got back from vacation, oh, and I, I don't think I would have been able to answer the hobby question any better, <laughs> because I think in New York, you're, you're, you're limited in some ways to, uh, you know, cultural activities, uh-huh. going out to great restaurants and hanging out the park, um, you know, but uh, I, I, I think I actually have a great answer for this now, which is, um, I, I really do love kayaking, and when I was in Hawaii, where I was for vacation, mm. I got a chance to experience that during whale season, mm-hmm. uh, migration season. And if you've ever been or know um, about these patterns, you know, 10,000 or so of these humpback whales come through in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. They are giving birth, they're nursing, they're mating. And I was essentially kayaking with humpback whales. I had three whales swim under my kayak and wow. I can't tell you what an experience that was and how in some ways pretty life-changing because you are so close to these mammals who um you know have been around much longer than than us in some ways right on on this planet and it really took me out of everything that I experienced here in New York. I mean, you can't get any more different, right? Wow. Than, than no. that. And so, um, I'm, I'm happy to say that I actually have a, like an official hobby I can talk about now That's where, cool. I hope to, where I hope to be able to, you know, kayak and, and, and see whales around the world. Wow. I mean, and so, I mean, in my research before our conversation, I had seen the post that you put up and it looks as if your camera maybe snapped it even better. So it <laughs> yeah. feels, it's, if it, it felt to me like when I read that, that maybe you even didn't even really realize until after after you were back on shore, how close you really were to them. I didn't because the reflection of the sun off the water made it hard for me to actually see into the water. Uh-huh. And so when I stuck my phone in there, I was just hoping I would get something. Wow. Um, and yeah, <laughs> uh, thanks for watching that. And if you, if you do watch <laughs> it and the sound is on, you'll hear me like yelping when one of them started <laughs> Who to come blame out you? of the water. I bet. What a cool experience, though. And boy, Hawaii, I mean, talk about like the complete opposite and different experience from being in, in New York. But exactly. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is an amazing place. Um, I have not kayaked uh, with whales, but now I'm going to add it to my list of cool things to do. Um, yeah. Hope as we as we round out our conversation today, I'm curious, is there someone that you could recommend for a future episode? Yeah, absolutely. My friend, uh, Gary, he he is a photojournalist in New York City. 
He recently was featured in the New York Times. He was um, cover. He, he has been covering the pandemic from the perspective of restaurants in New York City, and really the only one out there almost every day um, documenting them through his photographs, which are amazing. Um, and so he has a double byline story in the New York Times. Um, covering one restaurant in the second shutdown that we just saw mm. and how difficult that was to go through again. So he's a great guy, um, you know, a friend, but also in, in many ways a mentor to me in journalism and has been, you know, at this uh, news game for for forever, for much longer than me, and uh, has been a great champion of mine. And so I want to pay it back and, and give him a big shout out. I would love to talk to Gary. And that I think is a really good um, point of view that would be really good to talk about on the podcast. Hope, I'm so delighted to have had time to, to visit today. And I wish you all the best. And um, thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you. And that's today's Friday Reporter podcast a podcast in partnership with PR Daily, a tremendous and helpful guide for all things public relations. Find us there on their website and join us again for another episode soon. Thanks so much. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.